Hi, everyone. My name is Patrick Curran, and along with Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we present our very first interview. Our guest is Don Hedeker, who is a professor of biostatistics at the University of Chicago. In addition to talking to Don about research and rock and roll, we talk about getting scooped, day jobs, the Brady Bunch, German parents, midlife crises, beer salesmen, putting a nail through a fish, the Ramones, and getting caught sneaking into parts of a hotel were not otherwise allowed. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, believe it or not, we are back again. Still can't believe it. Uh, last episode was about grad advice. And <laughs> how you doing, by the way? I'm just talking. I, no. <laughs> well, one of the grad okay, advices, be, be sure to let your advisor finish their sentences. So go ahead. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, I, was, I was just so excited about the last episode that we had with all the grad advice. You know, what? I, one thing that we've been doing for all these episodes is we've been giving people ways to contact us as if people would actually want to contact us, right? We've got our uh, our Twitter handle, at QuantitudePod. And in fact, people are starting to tweet stuff, which is weird. Um, we have the we have the email thing. We have the voicemail thing. So things are really, things are happening. It's very cool. They are indeed. Uh, so listeners, we do a little bit of divide and conquer, and Greg is more the social media guy, and so he sends the twits or whatever they are. I'm, I'm not a... I have no idea. He doesn't let me touch any of that. (laughs) But I oversee the email. If you go to our website, quantitudethepodcast.org, at the bottom is a little dialogue box that you can submit uh, suggestions for shows or comments or things like that. And and we appreciate everybody who sent things in. Uh, Some are less appropriate than others. And so we know who you are out there. But we got a recent one that I wanted to share. This came in just a couple of days ago. A good one? We got one? We got a good one. Okay. Although it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster. Okay. So my mother has come up more times than a typical mom does uh, in a typical podcast. And so I started reading this and I'm like, I can send this to my mom to show her that I, I, I actually am contributing to the world in some small way. And so here's what I got. Your podcast is a godsend. I'm sure as you're just starting out with the podcast, you're wondering if anyone is listening and if it is making a difference. You are. At our clinic for treatment-resistant insomnia, we have patients who simply cannot fall asleep despite trying all of our empirically supported treatments. I am pleased to report that listening to your podcast has changed their lives. Even if they wake up in the middle of the night, a small dose of your discussion on latent growth curve power is all they need. Thanks, guys. You're making a difference. All right. Excellent. It's, it's good to know. So maybe maybe that won't go to mom. That's... That is that's phenomenal. All right. Well, so I think no one is going to be able to accuse us of putting people to sleep with today's episode um, because we have managed to, we mentioned this early at the, in the very first episode that one of the things we were going to try to do was, uh, was talk to people who actually know stuff. And today is going to be an episode where we talk to someone 
not only someone who knows stuff, but someone who's actually going to keep listeners awake, I'm pretty sure. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about that, Patrick? I do. In the accusation that we are a universal cure for insomnia, we're going to come out <laughs> swinging. Because today, uh, we get to interview a rock star. And I don't mean that figuratively, I mean it literally. Mm -hmm. As we have a discussion with Don Hedeker. Don is a professor of biostatistics. He's in the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Chicago. He is not only a titan in the field, but he's just a seriously cool guy who is a major player in the Chicago rock scene. And this comes up in the interview. I defy anyone... <laughs> to sleep through dawn. So we are very excited to share this with you. Hope you enjoy it as much as we did. We are coming to you live from the Baltimore Inner Harbor. Is, are we at the Inner Harbor one? We're the Baltimore Marriott Inner Harbor at Camden Yards. We are doing our first remote broadcast, one where Patrick and I actually get to look at each other in the face rather than over Zoom. We get to make live faces at each other. <laughs> and what's special about this is that we're at the Conference of Society of Multivariate Experimental Psychologists, or Psychology. Uh, yes. Okay, good. And we have our first uh, in-the-flesh guest today, who is Don Hedeker. So, Don, do us a favor. Just start out. Where are you, your position? But then what we'd love to hear just as an icebreaker is, um, how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, it's been a crazy trip. Uh, right now, I'm a, a professor of biostatistics at University of Chicago in the uh, Department of Public Health Sciences. I've been there for five years. Uh, prior to that, I spent over 20 years at University of Illinois, Chicago, also in uh, biostatistics, um, school of public health there. <clears throat> But I actually got trained in quantitative psychology from the University of Chicago. And um, how that kind of developed was was like this. I, I went to University of Chicago as an undergraduate. I'm from Chicago. I've lived my entire life in Chicago, not even in the suburbs, always in the city. Uh, and uh, after graduating, and I, I, since I've been a teenager, I've been in rock and roll bands. So I've been playing in bands. And so after graduating from college, you know, I, I was tr hoping that my band would take off. And I was playing in... in Bands, but I got a job working as a data analyst at uh, Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. I had taken a bunch of stat classes as an undergraduate, and so I could do run regressions, do t-tests, that kind of thing. There's where I met Robert Gibbons, uh, who was just graduated with a PhD from U of C in quant psych under Daryl Bach, and he told me about this fellowship program that they had. Well, I wasn't thinking about going back to grad school yet. I was still hoping my music career would take off. I wouldn't be a rock star after yeah. all. <laughs> but I thought, well, I'll apply to this this program. If you know, if I get it, um, I'll go. And, and so that's what happened. I, I spent one year working as a data analyst at Rush, and then the next year I was back at University of Chicago, but in quantitative psychology, uh, studying under Daryl Bach. And so I did that, and I was at that time also working for Robert Gibbons, and so they were kind of like my two co-mentors through the 80s. I finally finished up in 89. Uh, for a while, I wasn't sure if I was going to finish my degree. I mean, because I'd done my coursework, I took the prelim exams, all that, but I was working pretty much full-time for Robert, and um, you know, I just couldn't even think of what can I do for a dissertation. And at that time, Daryl certainly was not one to 
to spoon feed you. It was basically up to you to come up to his level or as close to his level as you could get. So I, I you know, I had no idea basically about um, what to do. But eventually, I worked on mixed models with autocorrelated errors. And how I got into that was they had de- learned where Daryl and other people, Brian Robinbush, had developed multi-level mixed models in the '80s. Um, but they had assumed that the errors were independent. And I, I uh, had taken time series classes. I thought, well, maybe the errors aren't independent. Maybe they're correlated to some degree. So why don't I put in AR1 errors into the, the model? And so I wrote that up, programmed it, and that was my dissertation, which I completed in February 1989. The reason I say the month is that the month, next month, March 89, in JESA, was an article, Mixed Models with Autocorrelated Errors. <laughs> <laughs> so my first reaction was, thank God I graduated last month. <laughs> my second reaction was, oh crap, yeah. <laughs> I spent all this time knocking, what am I going to do now? I got scooped. I got completely scooped. So it took a while, but I then developed a methodology for ordinal outcomes, and that's what I then subsequently published in 1994 in uh, Biometrics, and then also uh, had developed programs, uh, statistical programs to do mixed models, both for categorical outcomes, continuous outcomes, because really that was always, I mean, being a data analyst throughout the 80s when I was working for Robert, I came to realize, you know, you, you want to develop methodology that people can use. Otherwise, what's the point? So writing the software it, back then, because but this was prior to ProcMixed or, or whatever kinds of uh, so- mixed model software you use these days, M plus was for M plus. <laughs> we wrote, you know, me, myself and Robert, we wrote the code. We, we put that out as a freeware program and tried to disseminate this methodology, especially in psychiatry where I had been working. Uh, people continued to use analysis of variance for repeated measures. They just love that stuff. But the problem with it, of course, is if you have missing data uh, or you have uh, correlated structures that don't follow compound symmetry, you know, those methods aren't so uh, helpful. So anyway, that's what kind of led to uh, to that. Then what led me to biostatistics? So I was I, I, 89. I, get a, I had a degree in quant psych. I'm still playing in a different band, but in a band. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I wanted to stay in Chicago because I had a lot of connections you know, I knew the people in the clubs and stuff like that. And I thought moving somewhere else, it's, I'm going to have to start that all over. So I really wanted to stay in Chicago, mostly for my musical reasons. I didn't get a job actually till uh, 92 in school of public health. It was in biostatistics. And so I had to c- kind of convince them that I was um, that I was a biostatistician, even though I wasn't trained as a biostatistician. Uh, but it wasn't really that much of a stretch because most of my collaborations had been in mental health, in psychiatry. I worked on longitudinal data analysis. That's, of course, something that's useful in, in biostatistics. And really, I have to say my training in quant psych was, was very, very useful because I always say this, uh, you know, p- statisticians used to look down their nose at latent variable models, right? Mm. They, that's not really statistics. But you can't measure IQ, personality with a blood draw. You know, it's impossible. You have to measure with latent variables. And over time, I think statisticians, biostatisticians have come to realize latent variable modeling is very important. And, and so uh, having that background from quant psych uh, was very useful. The, I think the only area I didn't really have too much training in uh, that my biostat peers did was like in stuff like survival analysis, let's say. Because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's a fundamental methodology in, in biostatistics and in medical studies that, that I had really not 
been so exposed to. But, you know, if you've been exposed to all these other kinds of models, it's not so hard to pick something like that up. And, and actually, I, I came to that uh, in an interesting way as well. Here's another kind of interesting story. So after I published that ordinal model, mixed model thing, I had a, a colleague from sociology, uh, Dick Campbell, and he says to me, you know, your ordinal model, it's like a survival model. I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? I could, uh, and then looking into it, and if you think about it, a survival model is truly an ordinal mo- ordinal outcome. Because did they die, you know, the first month, the second month, the third, the fourth, whatever. The only thing that you don't have is uh, there's right censoring, yeah. right, mm-hmm. that, that, that occurs. And so I, I did a little bit of you know research into these event history models, as they're called in, in social sciences. And sure enough, there's a big connection between uh, survival models and ordinal models. I worked on a paper in that regard, and thanks to Dick Campbell's suggestion, it took about a year to work on that, but I figured it out. But at that, at that point, I re- just remember thinking, like, wow, this is so cool. I've got, and I put that into the Mixor program, that ability. And I figured, uh, you know, I, I, my Mixor program, this program can, can estimate models for longitudinal ordinal data. It can estimate models for clustered survival data. It can do IRT models. And then it started to click to me, you know, these are all just variants of what we now know as generalized linear mixed models, right? There's this, you know, before I kind of thought these things as different sorts of models, but they're, you know, they're all express, just slight variants of the same family of models. So that, so that was kind of cool. Um, you know, another thing I would say that really helped me out early days was having written those programs uh, and making them available. When you do that, you have no idea how differently and creatively, let's say, people will use mm. the programs, mm-hmm. right? And so I would invariably get, um, you know, emails I tried to run this model, blah, 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 your program doesn't work. So the next thing I would email back and say, well, how much did you pay for the program? And they'd say, well, it's free. I said, well, you expect it to work? <laughs> Come on. Now, I'm going to interrupt briefly. Yeah, yeah sorry. I sorry. was in. No, no, no. Ramble on. Uh-huh. I was one of those people who emailed you. Okay. And you have no memory of this because it was 25 years ago. Uh-huh. I'm just a few years behind you, and I was doing my grad work in the early 90s. 90s, and we were starting to do growth models with adolescent substance use data uh, that have these piling up at zero, and so it was like a zero-inflated Poisson. Yeah. And so the details are not important, but I was one of those. <laughs> and actually, you and I had a wonderful exchange about it. Uh, uh, you helped us use this in the paper that we did. So oh, very you cool. can teleport okay. back, you know, 25 years, and I was one of those guys. Oh, well, well, that's so, that's great. <laughs> I, but I, I mean, that, that kind of interaction was so helpful for me to better understand these models because people would use them in, in ways that I had not thought about. And, and like you, the, yeah. the one you mentioned, I, I remember also there was somebody who was doing a, a study of a dichotomous outcome across multiple waves. It was a cocaine uh, outcome. Yes know basically and what and the program wasn't working and so send me your data back those days people could send me data I could investigate what's going wrong well it turned out that in that particular study they had three time points they had a dichotomous outcome like 80% of the subjects had the same response across all three time points either Mm -hmm. 111 or 000 and so I came to realize you know especially with a dichotomous outcome you might think you have longitudinal data but for a certain proportion of the subjects it's not really longitudinal. It's a constant. And so I built into the program. It then figured out, well, of all the subjects, what percentage of the subjects are 
you know, are constant. Yeah. And and so stuff like that happened. Another good, good example is somebody was modeling a random intercept in time model. And for their time variable, it was like, it started from 100 and went to 120. And, there, and the model wasn't working. Well, why wasn't it working? Well, the intercept variance that you're trying to estimate was zero. When time is zero, the data are here. You know, they're way away from that parameter. And so once I subtract it off, a hundred and went from zero to twenty. Boom, works like that. So there were th- situations like that that really helped me understand much better how to do this kind of modeling and really what what. And I try to pass this on, especially to the students. You know, think about your your variables, the scaling of the variables. This is all important because you can't properly interpret your parameters if you don't know the scaling of the variables. So uh, that was that was very helpful. Uh, what in those days writing those programs. So. 60 seconds or less, what are you working on right now? Right. So really in the uh, 60 seconds, I'll talk fast. (laughs) No, so what I've been doing uh, more recently is developing models that have random effects in the error variance. So, uh, and this is mostly for what's called intensive longitudinal data. So let's say you've got 30, 40 measurements within a subject. And what drew me to these models was my collaborations. I, I've been working in the area of smoking for a long time with smoking researchers. They would tell me, well, one reason people say they smoke cigarettes is to regulate their mood. And I would think, well, regulation of mood isn't necessarily about better mood. It's about more consistency in the mood. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the variance. And when I have, say, five time points per subject, I can't really estimate the variance per subject that well. If I have 50, I can. So with EMA data, the ecological momentary assessment, when I started getting into these kinds of data, I came to realize, well, let me try that idea out. Let me see if, if, if I use a covariate to influence the error variance and then additionally put a random effect on it because it's the same thing with the mean model. The covariates don't explain all of the reasons that there's correlation in the data. The residuals are likewise correlated within individuals. The random effect take, you know, will account for that while I estimate the covariate effects. And so I've been developing these, these kinds of models that have what are called location random effects, the usual random effects in the mean model, and scale random effects, which have random subject effects in the error variance modeling. And so that's been a lot of fun to look at uh, questions of variability as well as the mean structure and to, and to try it out with different kinds of data sets and different domains. Uh, one collaboration I had was with a sleep researcher. They had developed some kind of program to help people that were suffering from insomnia. Well, they had looked at... They had daily data, basically, on the amount of that they slept. Well, they had looked at, you know, does their intervention help them achieve a better mean? You know, and they had published that. Well, we also then looked at the variance. Is it the case that the intervention is helping them achieve, say, eight hours of sleep more consistently? Mm. And sure enough, there was, a, there was a strong effect on the variance as well as the mean. And so this was additionally kind of interesting. Um, and so I think it opens up the kinds of questions that, that one can look at uh, a lot more. And so that's what, what I'm excited about these days. <laughs> yeah, I think there are a lot of really rich questions in variance that get overlooked. We get so focused on the mean. There was a news thing a couple of months ago, I think, that it was uh, that was using, it might have been Fitbit data. People wear their mm-hmm. Fitbit to sleep and then it can tell when, when you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Right? But it was, it was variability in not how much sleep you get, but the time at which you go to bed and how consistent you yeah. are with regard to that. And that, that became an interesting outcome as well as predictor of, of other health-related outcomes. Right. Yeah. Another, you know, you mentioned that, it reminds me of this, this other study we worked on was we looked at um, the time until the first cigarette. And sure enough, people who are more, more experienced smokers 
on average, they have a cigarette earlier. So that's the mean effect. But it's also, they have it more consistently earlier. So it was an effect mm-hmm. on the on the variance as well. And that was kind of interesting because it was more like a survival outcome. It was time until the event. And so we, we uh, published this kind of paper for uh, that kind of outcome as well. So we've, mm-hmm. we've extended it for continuous outcomes, for ordinal outcomes, and, and also for time to event outcomes. We're now looking if we can go for other kinds of outcomes as well. <laughs> well, you know what I find so interesting? So I did not- not train as a quantitative PhD. I was a clinical psychologist and Uh came to it later. And one thing that it took me years to figure out, and I think this is still an issue with the field, is I thought we were modeling variants. Because what are the two things you learn? Analysis Analysis of of variants, which it took me two years to figure out were comparing means. But then when you get your head around that, we slap students again with what is the multiple R squared? How much variance are you explaining? Is there a reduction in variance? What is the F test for the R squared change? And all you're doing is shifting a conditional mean. And so I think a big part of that is on us when we talk about analyzing variants. We're not. We're analyzing mean differences with respect to variants. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent points. Exactly. It's, it's the same thing with the between subject variants, right? In a multi-level model, the between subject variants is the variability of the subject means. Right. Basically, how spread out are those things? But yeah, it, it, it's not uh, necessarily, it's not like the residual variants, which is really you know within a subject, how much are they variable, how much are they consistent, how inconsistent they are. So along those lines, you know, in doing this kind of modeling, I've tried to use different terminology to describe between subject variants and within subject Mm -hmm. variants. And so for between subject variants, talk of things like homogeneity, heterogeneity across subjects. With the within subject variants, it's about uh, consistency, erraticism within mm-hmm. subjects. So try to separate the language because I think you're right. It's it, when we conflate the language, things just get very confused and and doesn't really help things. So, but mathematically, it doesn't matter. Right, right, right. right. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another thing that I always try to th- in in writing papers and is is try to think of how I can make this as clear as I can to a person that's maybe trained, you know, at, at a master's level or or, or even. Lower than that in terms of statistics, and and that takes work. You know, this is one thing I, I, with my students. I always uh, they they have this idea that I just go and I write the paper and send it off and it gets accepted. Right? It's not like that at all. Not like that at all. I mean, the the, the critical. Uh, a very critical skill is editing, is to go after you've written the paper, go back, edit, re-edit, and try to you know make it as clear as you can. Then you send it out. I still have this. I have a review. I, I published a paper in JCCP, Journal of Consulting Clinical Psychology, in 1994. It was basically, back then, mixed models were, were still not that commonly applied. It was a paper kind of showing that, well, if we have data of students within classrooms and schools and we ignore that clustering, we get this set of, we get a lot of things significant. If we analyze at the aggregate level, we average, take the classroom averages, we get a different story. And if we do the multi-level analysis, we get the right thing. That's, that was basically mm-hmm. the, the crux of the paper. Well, when I sent it to JCCP, I had, there was two reviews. One was Reasonable. The other one was a scathing review. They were like, why do we need this paper in 1994? These methods have been around, da-da-da-da-da. So I always, I show this review to my students because they have this notion that I get always good reviews. Well, no, all of us get bad reviews, you're right. It's not really about the rejection. It's how you react to rejection because everybody gets rejected. 
be it grants, be it papers, whatever. It's, you know, I think of it like, you know, you get knocked down to the floor. Are you going to get up or not? You know, and that's the ability that you really need to develop is to get that, that thick skin. Okay, you know, you put the review away in your in your office for a while. You're, you're mad as, as can be. One week later, you take it out or something like that. You look it over again and you say, okay. I guess. Yeah, yeah, I guess <laughs> I'll do it. Right, right, right. But you, you, you have to do that, you know, because... Uh, because it's it's just inevitable uh, to to get the rejection. It's really how you react to that. Because I I, know, I do also know some colleagues who don't react to it too well, and it doesn't work out well. <laughs> it, it, it's a good skill to develop it to <laughs> to try to react to it in a positive yeah. way. You know, and, and again, even there too, I I think sometimes when the easy thing to say this is with grants too is like, oh, they didn't understand what what what, what, what we were doing here. The, the, this is a terrible review. It's like, well, maybe the reason they don't understand it is because you didn't explain it well. You know, you, you got to take some ownership of the fact if they don't understand it, it's not all their fault. It's like, uh, you know, maybe th- think about, well, why didn't they understand it? Try to to make it clearer, basically, because there's, there's no point <laughs> in arguing with them. You know, they don't understand it. It's, it's on you to try to help them to, to get over that. <laughs> I, I like that you've been interweaving a lot of advice for students. I, I was curious what you think our field, and I, I don't necessarily, whether it's what we teach our students or or what we're researching, where do you think we ought to be in a few years from now? Sometimes to me it feels like we're, in many respects, sort of in a place that we've been for a long time. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Well, it, it changes, uh, uh, but it, change, it changes maybe slow, not as fast sometimes. Yeah. I mean, what's come upon big time last five, ten years is, is machine learning, data science, all of that. And um, to me, it reminds me a little bit of like when I was in graduate school in the 80s, literal and structural equation models were all the rage, mm-hmm. right? And you and everybody was, was uh, using them. And of course, they have stuck around because they are useful methods. And likewise, I think with machine learning, uh, some of that is going to for sure stick around, but certainly there's sort of a faddish element to it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's useful for the students to get to learn about this new methodology. Uh, but also, I, you don't want to throw away you know some of the old s- stuff as well. I, one time I was at a conference and somebody made this recommendation. Why don't you know you, once in a while you should just go to the library, get an old copy of Psychometrica or Biometrics or, or Jess or whatever journal that you you read. You know, go, get one from the 1930s. Look at those articles. And and maybe read one of them, and and you you you'll find that the thinking there could relate to something that you're doing. You know, it's it's not like we've completely replaced statistical thinking or quantitative thinking. That's been around forever. And in some ways, years ago, they had to do it in a more efficient manner because they didn't have the computational tools that we have these days. So. I think that's that's another element to go. It's it's good to be moving science forward, of course, and and we want to do this. But sometimes it's interesting to go back and to see. Even today, Nial presented that that article from the 1898 or whatever it was. You know, and this person had data, and they were trying to basically come up with groups. It was sort of like a growth mixture model, basically, <laughs> right? right? In 18 Patrick leaned, Patrick leaned over and said that exact yeah. thing to me during the talk. Yeah. 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 yeah, so we're at this conference, and we all sit around, and Greg and I mostly sit next to each other and are like seventh-grade boys in the back of the class, texting each other, taking pictures of people across from us, and then modifying it. Uh, uh, with pencil markings and then texting it to other people. And so, yes, as he was talking about these data from 1898, and we were talking that it was the first latent mixture. Right, right, right. Because they had three kinds of kids, you know, based on, and 
it looked like it was kind of a tertiary split, you know, on what the number line was. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm teaching an undergrad class in quantitative psychology, and uh, we actually read students' 1908 oh, really? oh, cool. paper. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's a lift. It's, it's interesting to see. The math in that is insane. Is it? Okay. But the okay. first third of it is one of the most clearly written colloquial laying out. And what he does is he tips a hat to Carl Pearson that if you get enough observations, then your estimates will resolve to the population parameter. But in this very folksy colloquialism, he says, however, we are not all in a position where we can assume that these population conditions hold, and he goes into the t-test. Oh man, it's really neat that to is, see. That's cool. Yeah. You know, I, and I think that's another skill to really develop is that that the writing skill. I mean, I remember I was an undergraduate at, at University of Chicago, and I was an econ undergraduate because I coming out of high school, I'm like, I don't know what any of these fields are. <laughs> you know, I, I, but I liked math and I liked uh, social science problems, so I thought, oh, econ. And I, I remember being in the library and picking up a. a a book by Milton Friedman. I thought, oh, I'll never be able to understand any of this because you know he's way up here. I'm this lowly undergraduate, and I was able to follow. And I and the reason I was able to follow what because he wrote in such a clear and understandable way. And Fisher is like that as well. If you read his his articles, you know it's it's one reason these people are successful is they're able to explain things to a wide audience and in a very clear way. And and again. This is not something that one's born with. This is something that one can work at. Uh, and I've certainly d- did that because I know when, when I began, and many of us, I think, are probably like this. I got into st- quant methods because I like doing statistical analyses. I like data. I like playing with data. I really didn't like writing <laughs> that much. But, of course, to succeed in academics, one has to, to write. So it's something that I worked at and tried to improve upon all the time is, is to, to do a better job of, of writing the, the report, writing things out. Uh, but it, it, it's not something that that, um, that I enjoyed initially, but I came to to appreciate it. So, for somebody <laughs> listening who is learning how to write, what? How do you learn that skill? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, I think one way uh, to do it is, if you can, is to share whatever you've written with colleagues, get feedback from them. Uh, that's certainly one way because you might think it's very clear and 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 they don't and then you'll learn where you can improve things uh, of course everybody's busy who's got time um, but I think that's that's one way for short uh, to do it um, another way to do it is is again I, you write the paper and then you you put it in your desk for like a week or two sometime then you go back to it because the time when you go back to it you'll be like oh you know you'll come to it with a new set of eyes basically and so that can also be helpful um, the worst thing you can do is to to rush a paper together and then send it away you know because um, it, it's it's not a really it's not a race it's about when you when you do submit it you want it to be the best it can possibly be Except if you get scooped a month away. Yeah, right. That's right. Well, there is that element. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, the funny thing about that story, too, to end on that. So so because of that, I turned to Ordinal, uh, because binary had been done at that point, but Ordinal had not yet been done. And and actually, in my dissertation, Peter McCullough was on my dissertation committee, so I had a chapter on Ordinal mixed models. So I had derived the solution, but I had not programmed it. So then I worked on programming it. So anyway, it gets published in 94. Then there's uh, an article that came out in a different journal, Toots and 
somebody else, uh, two German uh, statisticians, and it was on ordinal mixed models. I, so I looked at that, and at the very end, they had like an editor's note. This paper came in prior to Hedeker and Gibbons oh. <laughs> being published. Uh-huh. Great. So I, I always wanted to get in touch with those people and say, look, the reason I scooped you is because I got scooped. Uh-huh. I was just right. passing it along. Okay. Right. Your turn. <laughs> right. It was kind of weird. <laughs> uh, well, we have a lot of questions that we could choose from to bother you with. Um, Patrick, I don't know if you have anything professional or if we should turn to bug him about non-professional or unprofessional things. Well, maybe one, you've already addressed it and you've given, obviously, you know, given this a lot of thought and, and this is part of, you know, kind of how you are professionally. But, you know, for again, people who are like quant, they like data. I think all of us got in this because we like playing with data. Yes. Right. Yes. You know, so there's somebody who's in their graduate studies, choosing to go to grad st- studies, you know, wherever they are in an earlier career. I mean, what are some just very specific recommendations you have in, you know, the three of us, we all entered an academic world that is very, very different sure. than that it is now. I yeah. mean, what do you tell your students and, and what would you have told a younger Don Hector <laughs> if you could teleport back? Well, to I would, the rock band. Uh, yeah. I would. I would have told him what my mo- mom always told me: keep the day job. Right. <laughs> That's what she told me, and she, she that was very good advice. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know, I think the thing is, what's interesting, I think, with Quant Psych is, is it's really, I think, it's doing pretty darn good right now, relative. When I got out in 89, it was kind of more in a, what they were looking for were, um, in terms of psychology departments, wanted uh, stat people like myself to teach the stat courses, but they were not uh, giving PhDs in quantitative methods or methodology or stuff like that. So I came to realize if I go in that area, you know, then I'm just going to be on everybody's dissertation and I'm just going to be, it's a total service kind of job. And I wanted to mentor students, so so for me that didn't seem quite so appealing. That's the thing I think um, uh, to look for in terms of when you're uh, looking for a job is is I don't know, know what I was. I, I would have taken any job practically, you know. So it's like you're you're just finished, you, you know. You want, but you, you try to figure out the parameters of what it's going to be that you're going to be actually doing. You know, how many courses are you going to teach? Are you going to be able to mentor PhD students? Do you want to do that or not? Um, are you going to just be a you know providing service to the department? Things like like that. These days, I think there's there's more to choose from. Of course. It, it all being on the you know on the internet and everything like that. There's a there's a lot of people also with eyes looking at things. Back in the you know early days, uh, it was some of it was word of mouth or this person knew that person or you'd see it in Amstat News, a job posting things like that. I think these days it's it's a little bit more uh, more things move more quickly. And in terms of like going to a, a graduate program, you know I th- I think if you're you're considering going for a PhD, uh, you want to go to a program and align yourself with people who are doing things that you're interested in. I mean, where I'm at now, University of Chicago, we have a small department. We, uh, we're public health sciences, so we have biostat at the at health services research. We only admit one student in each of those areas, more or less, each year. So we don't have a large PhD program. And so what we're always looking for is students that align themselves with what we're doing. Because there's no point in admitting, uh, you know, a student that wants to do work in some statistical or biostatistical method that we don't know much about. So, I mean, I had no, when I went to graduate school, I, I, I just went, oh, it's University of Chicago. Robert says Daryl Bach's really great. <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> 
I mean, I remember meeting him for the first time, and uh, and he was just like, "Oh, you have to immerse yourself in this, in this." And I would, and at that time, I was still playing in the band and thinking like, "That's really what I'm," you know. I was excited about that. Um, I'm not so sure I want to immerse myself in in this or not. He was kind of right. I mean, eventually, I did get that point of immersion, but it, it took a little while. I mean, I guess that's the other thing I would mention with regard to uh, uh, quality of life issues or whatever. Uh, it's it's great to be in academics. You get there's a lot of you know you've got your own schedule to some extent. You do things you're interested in. Uh, it's good to have outside interests as well and to to uh, to keep those things going. I, I mean, I see some people that are so so focused in the, in the science and and that's great. But you know, one way I think about it too is like. Look, whatever we're working on these days, you know, in 10, 20 years, they're going to be working on something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're continuing the process. We're, we're like a chain, you know, a bead in this chain. And, and that's, that's great and all. But it, for me, at least, I, I like to have outside interests. I, I do music. That's my outside interest primarily. And, and I've kept that going. Um, you know, because I was one of those, you guys are too young, but I was uh, one of those kids that saw the Beatles on 1964 on the Ed Sullivan show when I was six years old. And I was like, wow, you know, it's like, I want to do that. <laughs> and so I've kept that going throughout my life. And, and it's, it's been a great foil. But also, I will say this, it's improved my ability uh, at teaching, at doing presentations, because I come to understand a little bit more how to entertain an audience. I mean, when you're giving a talk, there's an entertainment aspect to the talk. Mm-hmm. You know, you're trying to entertain them intellectually, but they're still, you want to think about what are you presenting? You know, I see some people give presentations and there's like 20, you know, the font's 12 point or something like that. Somebody in the back, they're never going to see that. You know, you, you, you got to think about your presentation and and make it you know make take out whatever's unnecessary i I sometimes think this i tell my students this if there's one idea you want the audience members to get out of your talk what is that one idea and make sure and you emphasize that idea as much as you can because you can't expect people are going to understand you know every single thing of your talk what's the most important things that you want to communicate let's try to emphasize that even still, you know, early days, I would go to conferences and I would, would study people who were doing presentations. Why is this person doing a presentation that I can understand? And why is this person doing a presentation that I can't understand? And again, this is not something that one's born with, but something that one can develop. Why is this person giving a presentation that, that everybody seems to understand? What is it about it? You know, and you come to realize things like uh, talking to the audience instead of looking at the slides. <laughs> I mean, back in the old days, we had overheads. And I'd see people who were talking directly to the slides, not engaging the audience whatsoever. They're nervous. Everybody's nervous when you begin. But you have to try to develop those, those skills uh, if you want to communicate effectively. And so, you know, those are things... Um, I, to work, I still, you know, you go to a conference and you see some people that give a, give a really good talk. It's like, you know, what what made it so good? And 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 uh, try to incorporate those ideas in your own work. It's some people. It seems like they they don't take the teaching and communication aspect as they, they don't realize its value as much as possible. And and I would say you have a history of not just developing the science, but also communicating it clearly in what you write, and then developing the software that people need to actually get their hands on it because it doesn't do a lot of good if you only have 
you know, if you only have the first one or the first two. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, throughout, you know, my, my career, I've always thought about this accessibility thing. And that's also why I've re- worked on some papers that were published, like the JCCP paper. Sure, that statistical methodology had been developed already. But... There were a lot of people in psychology that were not using this methodology. Why? Because it wasn't as accessible. So writing those kind of translational papers, even when you, you, know, you go for promotion, they may not be considered as important. I think that they're very important. If you can get a whole substantive area to, to start using methodology, some new methodology, that's, that can be a tremendous thing. You know, one thing I've focused on time and time again is not just development of the methods, but trying to, to make them more accessible to people who can actually benefit from their use. Yeah. I think a lot of times how, how I've seen that work is like if with a, even just on a one-on-one with a substantive researcher, if I could show them something that I can do with my new methods that they had not been able to do with more traditional and then they'll get excited about this methodology and say, like, wow, that's cool. So what that means, though, is that it's great to ha- you got to have good examples, too. You know, I mentioned earlier I did this work on uh, survival analysis, mixed model survival analysis. Well, the methodology was, was reasonable. The example I had wasn't a great example. We were looking at smoking initiation among, in an adolescence population, and there, there just weren't any significant effects. It was really, the data set just did not tell much of a story. And so that is a paper. I had to go to three different journals and get that published because, and I don't think it was necessarily the methodology because that was not bad. But the, but the example... It just wasn't one that, that, that showed the benefit of this, this methodology. So that's another important thing is to, to try to find, link, you know, to have data sets that really show off your, your methods. To, that can really help to sell, sell the methodology, I think. Yeah. I, I really especially appreciate it when a, a real-life problem is the impetus for the development of these methods rather than, I developed a method now, where right. where, right. where data somewhere, right? So Without a doubt, yeah. yeah. So music has come up a little bit. Let's walk away a bit from the equations and optimization and tell us about your band. Sure. My current band is uh, called the Pocaholics, uh, and we're now going to celebrate our 22nd anniversary in November. And and again, I have been playing in bands since high school, basically, which goes back to the early 1970s <laughs> to date myself. But the Pocaholics came about because uh, I was around 40 at that time, and I had a midlife crisis uh, playing in rock bands. But instead of getting a toupee and a sports car, I decided to go the opposite way. I'm going to play old people's music. <laughs> Why try to look, wear spandex and look like a 20-year-old? I'm going to try to look like a 60-year-old and play polka music. <laughs> but how I got into polka was this. So my parents are from uh, Germany, and I, I, I always I tell this story. You know, I was grew, grew up in the 60s and the 70s, and I didn't want to be at Hogan's Heroes. I wanted to be the Brady Bunch. You know, I wanted to be American. I didn't want to be uh, ethnic or anything like that. But across time, I came to realize one it you got to use what you got you know and use it to your advantage and so um when i started uh, getting to, into polka i came to you know i've in rock music back then it was like if you're from la or new york you know those were the, the selling points but if you're playing polka music if you're from the midwest you know that that trumps you can't be a polka band from la come on <laughs> i'm sorry but from chicago that works so we developed this band playing polka music but in a rock and roll kind of way so with guitar bass and drums 
And really, the first time we did it, uh, t- again, 22 years ago, I, I got together with two other guys, and we, we just we just were curious, can we even pull this off? And we had our first show, and it was like, man, this is such a blast. we got to keep doing this. And so we, we kept doing this, and, and it's just turned into this. Um, it's, it, for me, it's great, because I, it's, I know a lot of my musical friends that, that can't play in clubs anymore, because the deal is this. If you don't draw an audience... You're not going to be playing in any clubs because they don't care what you sound like. What they care about is how much beer they sell. And this is another reason the Pocaholics work so great because all the songs are about beer. So we sell a lot of beer, right? So that's why, you know, we're not really musicians. We're just beer salesmen. (laughs) So in post-processing, we're going to slip in a Pocaholic song so that people can hear. Pick the song that we're going to do and give it a quick intro. (laughs) And then sometime later, we'll cut this in. So what... Do you think is an iconic Pocaholic song? Well, probably uh, off our first CD, our theme song, uh, which is We Are the Pocaholics. It's actually the Pennsylvania Polka. And so what we did, what we've done in several times is to take a classic song but change the words or change the approach. Another good example is uh, there's a German folk song called Musiknen, which is um, it's a wall, it's a slower song. It's also known as a wooden heart polka. And Elvis actually recorded this because he was over in Germany as a, as a GI. He came back and he recorded this song. But we don't do it as Musik Den or the, the um, Wooden Heart Polka. I change it to the Existentialist Polka. <laughs> so so that's, uh, uh, that's kind of been kind of a fun thing. And in a way, it's, it's not unlike the research. It's like you take two elements that haven't yet been combined, right? Mm-hmm. You take something from econometrics that they do in this way and they haven't yet done it in... Or you do it differently in, in, in the structural equation model or whatever. You, do, you see this, you see this, you put them together. What will this be? You know, and that's how you create uh, new art, new, new, new science, really, is, is you take a fish, you put, put a nail through it or whatever, something like that. <laughs> so you heard it here first, folks. It's the future. Take a fish and put a nail through it, and you have a new form of art. Right, exactly. <laughs> Maybe not a great form, but a new form. Yeah. Let's, so I, I had a, st- a string of questions that we could throw at you really quickly, and they, they allude to a variety of things. But actually, Patrick, you're just going to feed off this. You didn't know you were going to, but you're going to feed off this. I did not. You did not know this. Okay. The answer might have already been told. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say both. Here's the reason. Um, no. Yeah. Well, let me let me let me go through this. Okay. When I was again, I saw the Beatles when you know in '64 when I was six years old. I was immediately a Beatles fan, and all through the Beatles career in the '60s, you know, I, I tr- tried to get as many records of theirs as I could, and I was you know I was totally into the Beatles. The Stones were viewed at that point as like the bad boys, and. Uh, because that was the marketing of the Rolling Stones. You know, the, their manager realized the Beatles are the good guys. Yeah. Well, let's market the bad boys. But then once the Beatles broke up and I got into high school, I got heavy into the Rolling Stones. And so I would say, you know, ultimately, if I have to, ch- it's, it's an impossible choice. I would say 
my musical uh, playing for sure is more influenced by the Rolling Stones and Keith Richards in particular. I mean, I, I listen to their albums, and like their live album, Get Your Yaya's Out. I've probably played that, you know, thousands of times, trying to learn every single Make note. Yeah, and lick on that and, and come up short, but still try. So I guess, uh, but... You know, you, how, how do you compare the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? I mean, <laughs> but I know younger people who say, oh, they're overrated. Uh, I say, write a song as good as the worst song by the Beatles. Come on. You know, it's like, you can't do it. I'm sorry. Right. Patrick, do you have a, do you have a binary choice that you can just pull out like that? Acoustic or electric? Uh, I would say for me, uh, electric. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have acoustic. I play, I can play that around the house, but, but. Yeah, there's nothing t- like a, the sound of an electric guitar for me. It's um, you know, and and I like, I have a, a old Gibson Les Paul Jr. It's got what's called a P90 pickup. It's a black pickup. It's got one pickup. It's got the greatest sound for me. That's it. <laughs> the Les Paul Jr. going through a Music Man amp or a Fender amp, something like that. That's the sound. <laughs> uh, I don't know if this is fair, but let's go with Sex Pistols or Ramones. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so that that's sort of like then gets to my college years. In, in the 76, 77, when punk rock was starting to happen, I uh, you know I was like, what's this, this punk rock? So I, I got a Sex Pistols record. It's like, wow, this is the greatest thing. So at that time, uh, there was a, uh, I went to the college, University of Chicago. They had a radio station, WHBK. And so I created a radio show called Anarchy in the UC. Oh, and so nice. <laughs> playing that music. At that time, college radio isn't the way it, it became. It was, they were trying to emulate essentially FM rock radio. Mm-hmm. So they, didn't, they were not about breaking new artists, local artists, stuff like the way it became uh, more common. Um, so they put me on from like 3 to 7 a.m., Middle of the night because they didn't they wanted to bury me right so I didn't care you know I was so, so I wanted to play this music and so I was on there and then the next year the the person who became the program director he really liked my show so he gave me the Friday evening you know six p.m. to ten p.m. Wow. slot the great slot yeah. right and so I, I did that and during that period of time this is uh, in May of nineteen eighty. The Ramones uh, came to University of Chicago to play a concert, and I, I was in a, a band that was playing around campus. We got to open up for the Ramones, oh. and so that was like you know, wow. Uh, wow. yeah, that was uh, a great thrill. Uh, interestingly enough, um, the one who talked to us was Johnny Ramone. Johnny was a, he was uh, you know he was a relatively friendly guy. The others, it wasn't like they were they just didn't want to have anything to do with us. Basically, you know, they just wanted to do the gig or whatever. And another thing I remember from that that show is um, after the the show, Joey comes off, and he's like he's like ready to collapse. I, I, I had no appreciation at that time how much energy singing takes, especially singing the Ramones because they're like nonstop, oh, yeah. you know. Like uh, and so it was it was very interesting. And the other interesting aspect of that concert was. Okay, so that was my senior year in college, um, May of 1980. We just opened up for the Ramones. I'm thinking the next day I'm going to be like the king of the oh, year. Yeah. Right? I'm walking around. Nobody says anything to me. I'm a complete nobody. You know, it was just like, it was a very, 
you know, useful, you know, and that's the way the music business is. You're up one day, you're down the next day. It's a roller coaster, but it was a great thrill. So um, answer that question, Sex Pistols or Roll... Oh, here's another uh, uh-huh. interesting tidbit. Okay, so that, it was that summer, I believe. So my college roommate, he lived in Long Island. I, I, I went out for a week and we went every single night... Uh, we didn't stay in Long Island. We went to Manhattan. We went to CBGB's. We right. went to Max's. We went to, to and we were in CBGB's. Uh, this was would have been August of 1980, thereabouts, or was it 79? It might have been 79. Anyway, I, we went to CBGB's. See Richard Hell and the Voidoids. Who walks into the 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 audience? But this guy that looks like Sid Vicious. And, I'm, and back then there was no internet, so I was like, "What's he doing here in New York? They're from England, you know." And then, and, and he walks in with Nancy Spungen, actually. Right. Then after that, there's this guy who walks in who's Jerry Nolan. Jerry Nolan was the drummer in the New York Dolls and the Heartbreakers, two bands that I really, really liked. So I knew it was him. So this Jerry Nolan, he's also with, with, with a woman, goes to talk to, Sid, to this guy that's Sid Vicious. And I'm like, well, that's got to be Sid Vicious then. And in fact, they were talking about, because they played some shows together around that time. But here's the saddest aspect of this entire encounter. That afternoon, I had gone to Bleaker's Bob's, which was a famous uh, Greenwich Village record store, and I had gotten a 12-inch copy of My Way, the Sex Pistols' My Way, which Sid Vicious sings on. He's on the cover. And I, was, I had that with me at the time. <laughs> and I was thinking, like, I should go up to this and get him to autograph it. And I was like, nah, he'll probably just break it or something like that. So I didn't do it. Yeah. And he walked right by me. I could have had an autographed yeah. Sid Vicious My Way. Or a broken <laughs> yes, really. Sid Vicious. Either way, yeah, it would have been totally. pretty cool. So that was my brush with frame on the Ramon side and the Sex Pistols side. We didn't play with the Sex Pistols, unfortunately. I don't know. Geez, that's a hard question. Who's better? Uh, I, I think the Sex Pistols were more revolutionary, I would say, mm-hmm. in, a, in a sense. The Ramones were um, very important and, and very influential. Uh, yeah, they're, they're both way up there, of course. Good. That's <laughs> nice. Patrick? So in all the interviews that we do uh-huh. on the Q-Pod. Going back right, to the very beginning. Going back to the original interview. I, I, I can which, guarantee Sid Vicious was not mentioned. Well, <laughs> no, but if we think back to the very few first interview we ever did on, on Q-Pod, um, it was 51 minutes ago when we turned on the recorder and here it is. So going back across all of the interviews, we wrap up with one question. Okay. All right. All right. That is, well, first I want to clarify that um, this is completely plagiarized from a podcast I love called Make Me Smart with Kai Rizdahl. And they do this. And so total plagiarism. Right. But I learned legally that if you identify it as plagiarism, then you're not in trouble because you know it. Yeah. Plagiarism is only a problem if you don't realize it. Ah, So the question is, yeah, just remember that as a professional (laughs) development. Um, What is something that you thought you knew, but later you found out you were wrong? (laughs) So many things. (laughs) In my in my career, it's like when things don't go the way I, I thought they would go and you have to dig deeper and then try to understand. That's where I've really learned things. I'll give you an example. Like in my dissertation, I developed these mixed models for uh, for longitudinal data, and um, the data I said I used was a psychiatric data set published by Reesby from 70s, and they had done this very rudimentary analysis and found that, that what they were looking at was drug levels of uh, 
of antidepressants where they rela- related to depressive outcomes. And they had seen, a, they had done like a Kendall's <laughs> correlation, basically. They had longitudinal data, but they didn't know how to analyze longitudinal data then. So they just took the last time point, the depression level, the level of drug, they did a simple correlation, they got a significant p-value, you know. I then did this mixed model with time-varying covariate of the drug level, time-varying outcome, and I got a, a, a significance of 0.06, right, a p-value. I'm like, what the heck is going on? I do this fancy work and I don't get a, a significant result. Well, what it came down to is that I was not modeling the relationship in the best way. What, what I came to learn is that you just plop a time-varying covariate into your model. What you're getting is essentially an average cross-sectional effect. It's like you did the analysis at these different time points, each one a separate regression, and then you, then you average the result. Well, I came to realize that the relationship in this didn't work that way. There was sort of a lagged relationship. Once I did that, I got a highly significant result. So, I mean, the point I, I guess I'm going to make is that it was really when things didn't go the way I thought they would were, were going to go that I, I learned so much because, it, again, it, helped, it got me to really think about what I'm doing and what I might do instead. And if I would have got, you know, in that first analysis, if I would have got 0.01 or 0.02, I, I would have never learned this stuff. It's, it's those mistakes that really, that really can teach you so much. So here's the other thing I would say. Is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Another thing, uh, if I can impart upon the uh, junior faculty, my first, very first presentation was at the Psychometric Society when I was a graduate student. So I, you know, I, I wear a suit, tie, I, I get all dressed up. I give this talk about what basically mixed model longitudinal data, and somebody in the audience who I won't identify <laughs> said, oh, well, that's very interesting, but the person was making this comment that my analysis was incorrect because I had not appropriately accounted for the missing data across time. So I, I, I was kind of, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know what to say, right? I was completely shaken. I, I got I, I went off and you know I, I was just devastated basically and I remember I then met that person like two years later at something else and I and we were talking I just said, oh yeah I remember you from the psychometric society and he goes oh I, I don't remember you from that at all and I thought you completely ruined my life and you don't remember this right? what are you talking about but then you know that was another example of you know getting rejection but yeah. coming back mm-hmm. from it and 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 trying to and just the point I would make everybody gets rejected I got rejected so many in so many ways but the the point is to try to to come back from that. <laughs> well, I would say easily you're the best guest we've ever had. Yeah. What do you think? Patrick? This is unambiguous. We need to vote? No vote. We don't even no need vote to vote. Is okay. You are the best guest we have ever had on I know you've said that many times before. Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay, we have. So, so it's, um, it's a conditional. It's the best guest we've ever had in a room in a hotel where we're not supposed to be, where there's a high probability of being kicked out. Yeah, so folks, we're, we're not supposed to be here. We snuck in. I snuck in the first time and was discovered and escorted out. And Greg snuck in another door. And so we have been wondering this entire time uh, if we were going to be able to wrap this up. And we have. And so on that point, as always, thank you for joining us. Uh, We hope you have enjoyed this even half as much as we have. This has been a wonderful time. Don, thank you so much for this. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Potters. 
Be sure to tell your friends to check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they prefer to get their low-budget homebrewed podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudeThePodcast.org, where you can leave us a text or voice message. Be nice. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast whose name is Latin for Egregious Error in Judgment. Today's episode was sponsored by Undergraduate Note-Taking, representing the increasingly offensive belief by professors that students should be active participants in their own education. By variable transformations to help achieve normality. Sure, that makes everything better. And by heteroscedasticity, the word whose proper pronunciation is accepted as a field sobriety test in 26 states. This is most definitely not NPR. <laughs>